one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back to Bring Home Sandrine, a podcast covering the disappearance of Sandrine Jordan. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. This is episode 10, What's in a Name? This podcast has been created for a mature audience. There is discussion about suicide and death. Listener discretion is advised. And the thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Some updates for you. There is a lot happening in this case, which is very exciting, most of it behind the scenes. I hope to bring you some specific details in the next episode. The Jordan family is still attempting to obtain the police file under RTI, Right to Information. The most recent refusal by Queensland Police was Wednesday, 10 May 2023. They did explain the refusal was an administrative one and they invited the family to reapply. After six months, the family is back at the start. The original application to RTI was lodged 12 December 2022. The first application was rejected 25 business days later because the wording was incorrect. A second application was submitted and 25 business days later the Queensland Police requested further time. That was agreed upon, which then gave the QPS 25 business days. And then this week, the application was rejected. Christine Day has submitted a further application and QPS now have 25 business days. By my calculation, the next due date for reply is 16 June. And that is the joy of RTI applications. You may recall I wrote to the State Coroner on 26 February 2023 in relation to this case. I received a reply on 27 March. The Coroner declined to comment on my email. Instead, I received a reply from the media section. Without reading out the entire contents of the email... I was advised that the decision to hold an inquest is a matter for the investigating coroner under Section 28 of the Coroner's Act, 2003. An application can be made to the State Coroner or the District Court for an inquest under Section 30 of the Act. The Attorney-General can also direct that an inquest be held. And similarly, a person can apply to the coroner who conducted the investigation or the State Coroner, for the investigation to be reopened under Section 508 of the Act. Good to know. The email ignored every single concern I wanted to raise with the Coroner. I believe the Jordan family should apply for an inquest, but only after they have all the facts of the police investigation. The family believed the police investigation was flawed. By obtaining the file and statements, they will be able to identify those flaws, if they exist, and then apply for the inquest. Alternatively, the police file may satisfy the police investigation was satisfactory and give the family the closure they so desperately seek. A win-win situation, really, for them and the Queensland Police Service. I have placed the entire email on the Facebook pages Missing Sandrine Jordan and Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations if you would care to read it. The Coroner's Office, the Attorney-General's Office and the Queensland Police Service are now all aware of this podcast. I expect someone from those departments 
is monitoring the podcast. This comment is on behalf of the Jordan family and sums up their position better than I could ever tell it. This has tormented our family for more than 10 years. We believe it's necessary for us to have closure to know what happened the day Sandrine disappeared. This has been a living nightmare for us. We are at a loss to understand and achieve why a full coronial inquiry was never provided. We believe the ability to view the files might give us some sense of closure. Let's hope that happens on 16 June 2023 when the next reply from RTI is due. When I name a new episode, I aim to incorporate something that will be reflected in the broadcast. I was at odds to what I called this particular episode. I was going to name it Don't Rock the Boat. I then decided, is the system broken? Perhaps more appropriate. And finally, I was going to go with Rush to Suicide. Eventually, I settled on What's in a Name. My guest on the podcast this week is Alison, who lost her son Jordan in tragic circumstances. The problems and hurdles that Alison and her family have been facing are so similar to the Jordan family. Alison was told not to rock the boat or she would never be given the police file under RTI. I really hope that is not true or the Jordan family have no hope of ever receiving Sandrine's file. We will know in 25 business days. Alison has some very critical comments to make about the coroner's court and how they work. It made me wonder whether the system is in fact broken. I know there are many concerns with the way Sandrine's case was handled. And there seems to be a rush to suicide where there is a sudden, unexplained death. And I am not just referring to the passing of both Jordan and Sandrine. I am aware of other cases where there is a rush to suicide. I am pleased to welcome Alison to the podcast. Alison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Graeme. It's good to have you here. We've had a couple of conversations now, and what you had to tell me really struck a chord with me. I, I felt that in a lot of ways the journey you're on uh, is very similar to the journey the Jordan family have been on. And I thought the listener would be interested to hear about your journey. Can you tell us, please, Alison, about your son, uh, who he was and what happened to him? Sure, Graeme. Um, so my son's name is Jordan, and I still say is because he's still with me every day. So, yeah, Jordan, he was about two weeks from turning 31 when he was found deceased in a national park at Burley Heads um, here on the Gold Coast. When was that, Alison? That was approximately two, uh, just over two years ago, two years and three months now. Around February 2021? Yes, February, the end of February 21. Okay. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, Jordan was in a relationship um, with a girl from Red Bank Plains for about four months and the relationship was, well, in the beginning we thought she was a perfect fit for Jordan and then two months into the relationship we'd seen a different side of the girl and we had come to realise that she wasn't what she appeared and as things progressed and she appeared to be escalating and I watched my son become more withdrawn However, when I say withdrawn, he was a little bit agitated at times, but having had said that, he was opening up with his family and then he arrived home on Sunday and and he sat with his family for about six hours. He'd left the girl and um, he didn't have a lot to say about her that was nice. Um, he'd opened up about the financial abuse, the, the violence from on her behalf, 
the control. Um, he found her exhausting uh, physically and mentally. He said that her abuse was unbelievably volatile and unpredictable. He, um, over the course of that six hours, we'd, we'd sat at the table and said, right, well, she's stolen all your money and we came up with a financial plan through the course of that week to, to get him on top of his creditors and, and he's had two loans. He went over to his big brother's place to live, which was five minutes around the corner from where I was. We're a very close family. And uh, he went there to live with him because he had the, the spare room and a proper-sized bed and aircon in the bedroom. It was just a very comfortable space. We we just wanted to give him some comfort. It was while he was at his brother's place that oh, he had charged his phone and, and of course, every time he came down near us, she would just constantly text him and his time spent was with us was on the phone validating himself to her with what we came to call novel, the length of these text messages. And they were very prodding and suggestive of him doing things he shouldn't be doing and, oh, it just went on and on with us. How long did this go on for, Alison? Four months. It was a very control. She was very controlling, very, okay. very controlling. After he oh. arrived home, it was four months, Was another four months, no, was it? No, sorry. This went on um, at Canaan's place for, I don't know, a couple of hours. He got there about 5.30 in the afternoon. Oh, okay. It was about 7.30, 8 o'clock when he left Canaan's and said, look, I'm just going to go for a walk along the beach and clear my head. Yep. Which for our family, that's a healthy and normal thing to do. We're real, real beachgoers, particularly the boys. I have five sons. Jordan was my second eldest. So. Canaan didn't think too much of it other than where he lived, the visitor car park was locked and he had to walk him out to take the car. Now, given that we lived in Surface Paradise and the beach was two blocks away, Canaan thought, oh, perhaps, you know, with all these lengthy text messages, that he's going back up and they're going to try and sort it out. And so being the liberal family and uncontrolling family that we are, Canaan just thought, oh, well, if he goes back, he goes back. So the, his parting words with his brother were, I understand if you go back, mate, but if you need me, call me day or night. You've always got a home here. If you need me to come and help you get your belongings, I'm there. And then that turned into, you know, Jordan sort of nodded and agreed. And then that turned into a little bit of a joke about a um, a toy that he had on the aerial of his beloved four-wheel drive that glowed in the dark. And he was flashing his headlights trying to show Kane and how this toy glowed in the dark. Yeah, and I having a bit of a giggle about it. And Jordan left, and that was the last we saw of him. And we got up Monday morning, and I had said to Jordan when he left my place to go to his brother's, come back at 8 in the morning, she'll go to work. We'll be able to go up and, and get your belongings while she's at work with just with dignity and peace, just and come home and don't look back was was what we had agreed to do. Of course, that day never came. Yeah, it was a... Um, so what a happened very, Monday morning? Well, 8 o'clock he didn't come. At about 6, 17 a.m., she tried to call me. I was just waking up, actually, and I thought, no, I'm not going to take your call. Then she sent a text message saying, I think, morning, love, do you know where Jordan is? Or some words to those effect, very short. Nothing to indicate that something might be wrong. And I thought, oh, you little witch, you're just trying to prod me to stalk Jordan. And I was getting my fifth son ready for school. And I thought, look, I can't be bothered with you. I, I just really need to speak to Jordan. And it wasn't until 8.14am when she sent a very long text message and in that text message, she began with accuse because I she was frustrated by this time that I wasn't responding to her. And it wasn't until the end of this accusive text message that she decided to tell me that Jordan was suicidal the night before and she hadn't heard from him since nine o'clock. Now, Graham, when I read that and knowing how controlling she was and how much of a stalker she was, I thought, sure he was, sure. Because if he was suicidal at 9 o'clock last night, you would have told us at 9 o'clock last night, you'll go to any lengths to control and stalk Jordan. 
And I just thought, you wicked little woman. I don't want to speak to you. I want to speak to my son first. So as time pressed on, I, I did try to message Jordan and ring him, but his phone was switched off. I had sent some messages and that's when I decided, oh, I thought maybe he can't charge his phone. And I thought he looked really tired yesterday. Perhaps he's just sleeping in. And and I thought, well, what we can't do today, we can do tomorrow. Let him sleep, obviously. For Jordan to be asleep, I thought he's very tired. He, he never slept in. So with that, I just went out the front and I had decided I'll just move my little council strip and do a little bit of gardening that I enjoyed. And I was just packing up my mower and I very hot morning. And I thought I'll go in and I had put a timestamp on on going to look for Jordan. And um, as I was packing up the mower and hosing the grass clippings off it, it was a hot day and I had decided I'd put the hose all over myself and cool off and rinse the grass off before I go upstairs for a shower. And it was just as I was doing that when the police had arrived to to give me the death notice. So, yeah, we were inside and I'm hearing this notice and I, I became immediately confused and incoherent and distressed as all the emotions you, want, you would expect one would go through. I also was very uncomfortable because I was soaking wet and let's face it, a little bit stinky from mowing the lawn and and I just felt a desperate sense to have a shower and get dressed and try and talk to these officers and but I just I couldn't even think clearly enough to work out how to fill up a glass of water, let alone anything else. And um it was soon after that that the police left and on their, their words leaving, they, they had told us suicide. Do you remember what um, they told you? I didn't ask how Jordan died. Um, it wasn't prompted because I was in so much shock and mm. almost disbelief that he was passed. Um, yeah, sure. And I actually thought they were coming to, um, I was expecting the notice to be my mother when I saw their solemn faces, I knew in that moment that um, it was a bad visit. Mm. And I had an elderly mum and I thought, oh, mum's gone. And she lived in Warhope, New South Wales. So I thought, oh, perhaps I've been out mowing the lawn and not answering my phone and the family have contacted the police. So, yeah, I, I actually thought it was going to be my mum. Okay. And when they said Jordan's name, they, they said, oh, you know, we're here, sorry to have to tell you, but Jordan Jordan is deceased. I can't even remember the exact words, sure. to be honest with yep. you. Yep. But I do actually remember gently smiling at this officer in a, like a confused confusion. Mm. And I said, oh, I thought you were going to tell me my mother was dead. And but and then I shook my head and went, but not that that would be a good thing either, I remember. I remember feeling so stupid for saying it. That poor officer, he was like, no, that wouldn't be good. Um, and then my fourth son walked downstairs and he did ask if anyone else was in the house and I said no. And the reason I did so is I thought Hayden was at work. I hadn't checked the upstairs bedroom. Oh, I just jumped out of the chair and grabbed him and held him and told him. And I don't know, it was sort of Hayden took over from there really, but because I didn't ask how, the officer just said it, it was suicide. And I was like, right. Look, the whole morning was just a confused state. But I do recall him when he left and, and I was trying to pull it together a bit. And I, at one stage I jumped out of the chair and I said, where is he? And they said, the Gold Coast University Hospital. And I jumped out of my chair to run to the key bowl and and Hayden and my then partner said, where are you going? I said, I've got to go to the hospital, make sure they're looking after him. And they sort of grabbed me and and said, no, 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 there's nothing you can do. You've got to sit down. And so I sort of, yeah, tried to collect myself there a bit. And it was just unfathomable. It just didn't feel real. Eventually they were leaving and I, I asked them, I said, do you know how? And they said, no, we're sorry, we don't. And then I said, did he suffer? And they said, we don't know. They said, um, these officers said, but we will come back. When we find out, 
we will come back. I never did see those officers ever again. Mm. And that's how we spent the next 13 hours, waiting and wondering. And in that 13 hours, the psychology behind that, what that, how that impacted my family was one by one, each of my sons arrived home from work and school. And then we had spent remaining, what, 10 hours or more, gathered as a family out in the courtyard at the table as we sat all the time. It was a beautiful area to be. Convincing ourselves. The police mm. had told us suicide. That seed had been planted. So we were sitting around the table going, but he wasn't suicidal yesterday and that's not Jordan and maybe he early heads, maybe he went up to the top lookout, maybe he slipped off the cliff, maybe it was a sudden decision and he jumped. For all intent and purposes, because we could not fathom suicide, we had arrived at a decision that he had to have gone over this cliff. So this was a fear that ran through me, knowing I had to ID my son 12 o'clock the next day. And in that moment, I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? Um, and secretly hoping maybe they've misidentified him or maybe he, he's messy and it's not Geordie. They, the hopes of a mother, right? Um, yeah. Because somewhere in that I'm thinking if it was Jordan, they would have come back by now to tell us what's happening. So the logic and reasoning for me was, well, it was confusing and quite mm. frankly. It was cruel. It was cruel. Alison, you told me the coroner had an investigation into Jordan's death. Yes. Just to remind the listener, there's two types of coronial inquests. There's a coronial inquest and there's a coronial investigation. The inquest is where witnesses are called. The investigation is where the coroner basically signs off on the police report. And it was an investigation the coroner did on Jordan. That's right, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And the finding was suicide. Is that right? Yes. Yes. The police had determined suicide. Well, Jordan, despite being found deceased in a national park, he was dispatched by police as a suicide. A okay. code 502, and that ought to have been a code 501, which is sudden death. Yep. And why that's important is that that then goes to, out through ISME to all other emergency services, whether it be the Queensland Ambulance Service, CIB, SOC, and the like. So for that to be sent out like that, it's telling everybody else who is approaching the scene that they are approaching a suicide. And mm -hmm. that how the scene was treated, I guess. A preconceived notion, so to speak. Yep, preconceived notion. Mm. Now, you didn't accept that finding. That's the case? No, I didn't. And the rest of your family? Canaan, absolutely not. About two or three weeks after Jordan's passing, his other two brothers they had sort of accepted suicide because the police had said so. Right. But two or three weeks later, they're like, no, Mum, now that our feet are on the ground, we don't think so. We spoke mm. to Jordan. We saw Jordan. We know Jordan. Now, with my five sons, there is my eldest one, and Jordan came along six years later. And then the three boys in the middle were – well, Jordan was 30, Byron was 29, and Hayden was 28. Now, the, uh, their neighbours would think of them as, as, you know, the three amigos, right. friends, three musketeers, and I called them Huey, Dewey, and Louie. These boys were each other's best friend. They were each other's preferred company. They did everything together. They had a knowing of one another that was uncanny. They were inseparable. Their bond and their and their love and their understanding of one another was it was it, it was unique and it was and it was beautiful. So for those two remaining boys, they tried to accept suicide because the police and the coroner said so. But eventually they were just like, Mum, no way. 
no way. We tell each other everything and anything. And that was the part that I couldn't get my head around. I thought even if Jordan felt that he couldn't open up to me, and Jordan was very candid, by the way. He didn't have a filter. He would have told his brothers. And I knew in my heart and my soul, I thought, Jordan loves his family so much. Jordan was extraordinarily family-oriented. In fact, he was the hub of our family. And I thought he would have at least left us a note. He would never have left this world by his own choice without giving his family some sort of an explanation. Okay. And I thought, and even if not me, definitely, definitely, he's the two closer brothers. Okay. So in the absence of that, we couldn't believe it. Sure. Whose idea was it to go down the track of right to information? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so I got the findings, sorry, eight days after Geordie passed. So the following Monday, we got the death notice on a Monday. And then on the next Monday, we had the findings. The coroner's finding. Yes, yeah, yes. Okay. And I I didn't really know what that was. I was, as you can imagine, when you've not been exposed to the coronial courts before, you don't even really, I didn't even know a coroner was a magistrate. We, we were still sitting there waiting for the police to come and talk to us, quite frankly. Yeah. So we were a little bit shocked. And I then reached out to a friend of mine in New South Wales and his daughter came up to attend the funeral and support us. And and I had said to my friend, and I don't want to say his name, I'm afraid, I said to my friend, I have the findings. What are they? He was he was adamant. Now, this friend was a uh, an assistant commissioner of the New South Wales Police Force. He was totally gobsmacked. And he said, Alison, you do not have the findings. You can't have the findings. It says on top, he said, oh, tell me what's on the top. And I told him, he said, it can't be right. What are they doing up there? So I emailed them to him immediately while we were chatting. And he said, my God, it's the findings. Is there an investigation? And so we sat on that for a few days because we'd still not had the funeral. Jordan, but I got the findings, was still at the mortuary. So it was late March after the funeral and that, that he said to me, don't rock the boat. Go along with it and I want you to apply to what they call in New South Wales FOI, but RTI here now. He said, I want you to apply for it, but don't rock the boat. Don't give them cause to think you're going to um, question the findings and apply for through RTI for the police file and ask for the dispatch log specifically. So I did as I was told. The frustrating part about all of that is they said it took five weeks. And I thought, okay, we can hold it together for five weeks, surely. It took five months. In that five months, so we got the findings on the 1st of March we had written to the, uh, the deputy state coroner that night, both myself and my eldest son. Uh, we're each in our respective homes, not realising each of us were writing to her. And we were a bit cranky because she had given a copy to my son's perpetrator. So by the 25th of March, I had to have an application into the state coroner for an inquest. So I had to get to work. The unfortunate thing is, is I did get a letter to the coroner on the 25th asking for an extension of time. He accepted that as my application for an inquest. Now I had to get together and put my submissions together. Now you're totally in the dark. You don't have any information. Nobody's talking to you. So you have to rally around and gather what you can to substantiate this application. 
I knew the clock was ticking. So by the time I finally got the information from the police, the police file, we were well into me having to get my submissions off. So I was unable to troll through it and understand it. Nobody, nobody in the force would sit down and help me read it and go through it. There was no support. There was no assistance. There was just keep that family in the dark. And that's how it felt. And it, and more to that, because we would visit the police stations asking for help to raise our concerns. We were, we were treated quite badly and quite poorly. And it wasn't until the coroner had, um, what he did, he didn't have an inquest, but he did hold a expediated review of um, my submissions. Okay. And it was during that time that we felt the police had changed their tune a little bit with us, were a little more accommodating and, 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 a, and a lot friendlier, but not prepared really to take us seriously when we were mentioning words like homicide. So we were placated. Now, there were many visits to the police station from the time of Jordan's passing, and not one of those visits were mentioned in Q Prime, not one. The only narrative in Q Prime that the coroner saw was that of Jordan's perpetrator, that the officer on the evening of hearing of Jordan's passing entered. That was it. That was mm. it. She took control. So we had this expediated review. I had sent the phone off that was found at the scene, Jordan's phone, to have it uh, celebrated and and forensically extract the data. Did the police do that? No. The the coroner closed Jordan's investigation two days after he passed and there's an entry in Q Prime that says "Don't, don't celebrate the phone. No need to celebrate the phone. Did you get that done yourself? Yes, I had to. Okay. Yes, I had to do that privately. So we were, I wrote to the coroner, I said, look, I've just heard from the data recovery place. We are two days away from receiving the data. Now, this was in January 2022. This was nearly a year later. And he's, um, so I had asked, please wait till we get the data back. Lo and behold, we got the coroner's decision not to hold an inquest one hour before I got the data back. Mm. I couldn't have. I think, yeah, they don't want me to have the data because okay. the only evidence that Jordan's suicide was a text messages exchange on Sunday night between his perpetrator and himself where he okay. showed intent to take his own life and that was relied upon. I have okay. now proven and had always said Jordan wasn't the author and I can now prove that. Okay. You mentioned to me about a judicial commission in Queensland. Can you just... Tell the listener about that. Yeah, I thought once I was declined an inquest, I became curious and I wanted to know how this happened. Then I started hearing of a lot of other families going through similar events as mine. I thought, how is this allowed? So I began to research and read legislations and, and acts and, and guidelines and I went on quite a journey. And it was in that journey that I had discovered that every state except for Queensland, has a judicial commission which can hold judges and magistrates to account where there is a complaint body for civilians. Um, I do think your complaint would have to be very substantiated and real, but Queensland doesn't have that. There is no avenue there other than through the Triple C. I was going to say, I wondered if the Triple C would cover that. Now, when I say that, I'm reading that off their website. So I I expect that that would be correct if that's what's on their website. So I thought, wow, what's going on in Queensland? So that became concerning to me. And then I looked for, oh, we had the joy of having the perpetrator challenging my son's estate. She engaged her lawyer within a day or two of Jordan passing and advertised his death. Now, we happened across that advertisement and learnt about it through her own greed Later on in March, mid-March, she was hoping to sneak it through and I thought, this can't be right. So I checked the Queensland Law Reporter and sure enough, there was my son's death advertised. I've got to tell you, Graeme, that was the day my knees came out from under me and I threw up. I wasn't ready to read that there. Mm. Um, but my hands, my hands at every step from day one were forced. I was on somebody else's timeline, I can tell you. 
and it was a deliberate timeline. It was designed to keep distracted, fused while we were at our most vulnerable and unguarded. I thought, wow, how can this happen? So I rang up the law reporter and I made inquiries. And I said, there's got to be a mistake. She's she's was with Jordan for four months. This can't be right. What's going on? It was then that I learned that anybody can put an ad in the Queensland Law Reporter and anyone can advertise a death. And I said, but don't I don't even have the death certificate. Don't you need a death certificate? He actually said, no, we don't require that. Queensland's the only state that you don't have to submit a death certificate to advertise a death to begin probate. I was floored. I thought, where's the checks and balances here? So I actually argued with this man who then went and spoke to his chairman and came back. I argued with him and I said, so what you're telling me is I can spend $187. I can write my own ad because you can self-represent. And I can submit it to you and you could advertise my death while I'm a living person. Is that what you're telling me? And he said, well, yeah. He said, but we've never had this happen before. And I said, well, there's a first for everything. And I said, and I can't believe this hasn't happened before. This is probably the first time you've been made aware of it. So the end result was no, they couldn't remove her ad because she'd paid for it or her lawyer and take it up with the Supreme Court judge because only a Supreme Court judge can change that. And that being, moving forward, I had made a suggestion that perhaps the Queensland law reporter asked for a death certificate before you advertise a death. Now, when I say this is important because we liken that, we being myself and my family, we've come a, become a bit crass over two years because the system is so confronting and it's so cold and it's so brutal that we actually call it kill and collect. You can kill somebody and then collect. And if you're lucky enough, you can sneak that by the family. Now, under Queensland's legal system with wills in a state, there is an expectation that there's transparency and honesty because it is a it is a law that's guided by it's a civil court and in a civil court they rely a lot on honesty but if you've got a perpetrator who is motivated by money you cannot expect honesty surely i just find that's very lacking and the checks and balances aren't in place and i truly believe if if you want to stamp out domestic violence murder you have to address and remove and put in barriers to the to the easy access to the motive and until that happens things won't change Alison has Jordan's estate been settled yes it took us six months um caveats went on and it was it was a very brutal process now Graeme I'd love to do a deep dive into that with you today. However, it's currently sitting with the Legal Services Commission. But mm. yes, the estate settled on the 27th of August, 2021, six months later, and it was a Friday. It first went to court on the Wednesday. The judge was most unhappy with her response to my application, and he deemed her response to it frivolous and awarded indemnity costs. Now, legally, what that means is he's telling her she's a crook and a liar and it's misconduct and had no place being there. And he yeah. actually said to her lawyer, what right does she have to hold up the realisation of this estate? Now, Graham, that was a brutal experience in that Jordan had life insurance. We were relying on that life insurance to pay for his funeral. They had put a stop who was paying for the funeral. They had written to BT Super for Life and put a stop to us paying for the funeral on the 11th hour. When somebody passes suddenly and that person has super or life insurance, you can't even access the pittance of government-assisted funerals. And now 21 was on the back of COVID, five kids, four of them adults. COVID had really knocked my family around. And, yeah, it, it was a push to find money for a funeral. The whole system with regards to that needs to be revisited because that allowed the perpetrator's mother to call my son prior to the funeral to try and negotiate Jordan's body with him. It was brutal. It was pretty much you give us the estate and we'll let you have a funeral. Mm, 
These were the sorts of conversations we were having with these people whom we've never met. We've only met the girl that was his partner. We've never met these people. We've never seen them. But this woman inserted herself and was just, it, it was horrific. And the system allowed it. It allowed it by the first officer at the police station on the evening he was found deceased, put that entry into Q Prime, which was negligent. She, he didn't qualify her as the next of kin. He should have turned, sent her to the reporting station. But over the phone, he took a statement from a complete stranger. To him, she was a nobody. She couldn't prove who she was. It was, his actions were illegal, quite frankly. And that opened, and I get cranky about that night because that was the catalyst for all that my family had to endure and suffer through. was realised eventually, yeah, but at a cost of $80,000 to the estate. Fast forward to May 2023. Can you just describe or tell me now where this whole situation is at? Right. Given my research and what I've found out in the guides and legislation pertaining to suicide, the coroner's own guidelines that he wrote in 2013, that suicide has been um, considered and deemed low in its complexity, which then means that, you know, there's minimal autopsies, perhaps it even says there's not even any need for the pathologist to be present, that mortuary nurses and staff can carry out preliminary medical examinations. And that's all they get because this is the stigma to suicide. So when I started reading all of that and the national and that they're operating outside of the national guidelines and those national guidelines, they say that a pathologist must attend and supervise autopsies. Now, preliminary medical examination is an external examination and now in the last few years has CT scans attached to it and a body-drawn diagram. They generally supervise, as our state coroner has written, means that pathologists could be in another town and everything is just simply emailed to him, he signs it and sends it back. That's general supervision. The the national minimum national guidelines say that a pathologist must attend, must, or supervise. It's a significant difference that one little word generally changes the landscape and I believe it's that one little word that has kept the, the, the guardian of the deceased, I like to call a pathologist, it has kept him at bay. It has kept him from giving our loved ones a voice. And this is why, in part, I can't accept the findings because if there are no proper medicals of which can be relied by people who are qualified to carry them out, then there just can't be any findings. For me, it ought to be that simple. And I will say that all day long. I was floored when I found this out and when I read these guidelines pertaining to suicide and particularly suicide by hanging, I knew straight away the last thing in the world I need is an inquest. The last thing I need. Because it's already, yes, when you have guidelines that speak directly, that are written by our state coroner, enforced by our state coroner, and those guidelines, speak directly to your person's manner of death. You're asking a coroner to second-guess his own own guideline. It's the last thing I need is an inquest. So I'm trying to explore different ways of going around getting to my end and reaching my end with this, if that end ever comes, listening to other families. And quite frankly, I'm still meandering through all of that, but essentially... I'm going to start lobbying because we need to get this and these cases into a federal Senate inquiry based on these minimum national standards and autopsies. That then turns it federal. It takes it out of the state. So I'm actually speaking to the opposition member of parliament, the Shadow Minister for Health. We're in our early days of discussions and I'm asking and I'm begging them to give us a Senate inquiry because our coronial system is broken. We are unsupported and I've never in my life until now felt stateless. 
We just don't have the mechanisms in place for the checks and balances. And families have been left out in the cold because of these guidelines. I get that the state coroner's intent when he wrote them was good intent, but when you've got police that see that as an opportunity to not do their job, they'll take it every time. They fall really short. These guidelines fall really short. And that goes to and speaks to the stigma of suicide. They say that they're trying to stamp the stigma of suicide out. That's impossible when the stigma to suicide is rife within our courts. I don't know what more I can say about that, Graeme, without compromising my current current mm. work that I'm trying to do. But, yeah, and I never, ever, I'm going to say, from Geordie's passing to now May 2023, when I realised the last thing I needed was an inquest and took the power of the coroner away from what I needed to do, I felt liberated. I felt like I had taken back control. I didn't have to dot my eyes, cross my T's, mind my manners anymore. And I felt empowered by that, to be honest. Mm. Strange as it all may seem, yeah, it's a bizarre world we're living in. Budget constraints and budget cuts pertaining to to suicides or, or, or sudden death of any nature. Humanity really needs to have a look at itself, doesn't it? It does it indeed. It really does. It seems to me you're fighting a war on two fronts. You believe that it is a homicide, which is a yeah. police matter, but you yeah. also believe the coronial system needs repair. It needs repair. It needs funding. It needs staff. It needs to give our state coroner the tools, the ability to run complex cases. Now, the coroner was um, in an article, our state coroner Terry Ryan was in an article on the 11th of, of January this year where he was speaking exactly about the lack of funding to investigate complex deaths. Now, the homicides that are written off as suicides, they're a complex death. They become complex because I say when the presiding coroner, who was the deputy state coroner at the time, within 20, well, 48 hours closed Jordan's investigation. That's the day Jordan became a cold case. Everything was lost. It, it ordered the freezer destruction of any evidence collected. She had then given a copy of the findings to the perpetrator. So there's the heads up. There's the lies you can tell around that. He immediately became a cold case. And that is when things get very complex. Mm. I'm absent without any consultation with the family, no proper interviews. Oh, it is said that the interview we had with the homicide liaison officer at the mortuary the day after um, Jordan passed. It is said that that was an interview. I say, no, that was an ambush. We were there to do an ID. Jordan was in the next room. That's an ambush. That is not an interview. Mm. And we were held to account, and that was the only interview the family ever had, and that was on the back of them first reading what the perpetrator had put in Q Prime the night before. Blindsided, absolutely blindsided. Basically, from the first moment, the police got involved. There was this preconceived notion that it was a was a suicide, and it was just treated accordingly. Yes, to the point where I actually spoke to an inspector more August last year. I had to go through ethical standards command. She saw nothing unethical in any of my complaints. However, they did give me a personal practice manager who saw also saw nothing unethical and thought maybe operational who sent me back down the line to the area inspector. And I thought, oh, well, I might as well go and talk to the wall now. This was the second time I had to speak to this man. Now I had to chase him up. So finally in August August of 22, I speak to the inspector again. And I said, well, can I come and watch the body-worn um, camera footage? He said, well, there isn't any. And I said, but why didn't they have the body-worn camera footage on? The explanation I was given for that is there wasn't a disturbance. There wasn't. So the first attending officers didn't wear their BWCs because they weren't attending a disturbance. But they were attending a crime scene 
I exclaimed. He said, no, they weren't. Jordan was a suicide. Mm. I said, but in that, you have just told me that they had decided that Jordan was a suicide before they even got there to have not had their body-worn camera footage on. He was a sudden it, death, it, really, not a, not a he suicide. He was a sudden death. Mm. They should all be approached as sudden death. They should. Mm. Should have been treated as suspect until proven otherwise, but. Yes. Alison, I'm going to leave it there. Look, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I'm sure something will come of your situation. Sounds like you won't give up easily. No, I'm far from exhausted. And I've got avenues and and I'm going to keep exploring each and every one of them. There's a lot of work to do. It'll take time, but unlike my poor son, I've been afforded time. All right. Thanks, Alison. Thank you. That's it for What's in a Name. Unless there is some significant development, I do not anticipate broadcasting again before the QPS advise the Jordan family on the outcome of their RTI application. And that reply is not expected until 16 June 2023. Please join me next time as we follow the evidence trail of what happened to Sandrine. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a new episode drops. If you like the podcast, please rate and review it for me. It does help others find the podcast. And if you do like it, please tell family and friends. The Facebook page is Missing Sandrine Jordan. You can message me privately on Facebook at Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations or email me at graham5353 at live.com. That's G-R-A-E-M-E, by the way. This podcast was made possible with the awesome assistance of the ACAST Creator Network, who do a great job. Music, Inevitable Hope, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.